Sabbath, everyone. It's good to see you all. Now, there are a couple of things that stuck out to me as I was sitting there and um, watching the video and hearing Dwayne share. One is, um, yeah, it's just, it's really blessed. It's a it's a blessing to hear the different journey that people are going on. And so, Dwayne, thank you for, thank you for sharing. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, very good for the soul. Um, the second thing that stuck out to me was that offering all over the division is going towards different cities, and we better receive a lot of money. That's all I know. <laughs> um, actually, I didn't know that video was going to be played, and so when I watched it, I was like, hey, I remember shooting that. <laughs> but um, it's really exciting that... Um, yeah, we, we, we definitely hit a shift in 2008 where the majority of the world's population moved into major cities. And when I see something like that, it really reinforces in my own heart, there's a reason why we're here. And, you know, there are times where we look around and it's, it's a room filled with sometimes anywhere from 30 to 50 or to 60 people. But God has a mission and a purpose for this place. And I just really... Um, gives me that sense of purpose and and I hope that you feel a part of that of that mission a part of that vision um, as we reach the city for uh, for God um, so today we're going to be continuing on in our series uh, the good news about sin and we are in part three. Oh, there we go and today we're going to be talking about sanctification sanctification and so I'm going to do a brief review um, through the past two parts of the, of the series. Uh, the first time that we talked about this subject, we talked about the three dimensions of sin. The three dimensions of sin. The first one being involuntary corruption, and that's the selfish nature that we are born with as a result of sin entering through Adam. And so we have a flawed nature, and we are born with... Um, deficiency. The second part of the the second dimension of sin is voluntary carnality and that is the intentional and sometimes even unintentional thing mistakes that we make. Third, the third dimension of sin is legal condemnation. Our default standing before God is as sinners and that is due to the two aspects of sin mentioned beforehand. So last time we talked about um soteriology, the theology of salvation. The first message was homartiology, which was the theology of sin. And then uh, last time, uh, the part two was soteriology, and part three is the second part of soteriology. And so we talked about justification, that change of status. When we are justified, we are no longer legally condemned. When we believe that Jesus has sacrificed his life on our behalf, then we are given a status of righteousness. Our status of condemned sinner is replaced with the righteous status of Christ. And we talked a bit about Martin Luther and that idea of swapping out our sinfulness for Christ's goodness, he would call forensic justification. And that term, as you read through different bits of uh, theology or as you read through different spiritual books, that term will repeat itself uh, periodically, forensic justification. Um, and so I ended the sermon last time by, saying, by quoting Martin Luther, simul justice et peccator, which means we are ever at the same time just and sinner. 
we are ever at the same time just and sinner. So last time we covered this bit. Today we're going to talk about this bit and this bit. So I want to talk about how the Bible says God deals with our voluntary carnality and how God deals with our involuntary corruption. So the first thing that I want to talk about is sanctification. What is sanctification? If justification, and forgive all the theological jargon, um, but if justification is a change in a legal status from condemned to righteous, then sanctification is the process of conforming to righteousness. It's a continuation of what has begun at the new birth. So at the moment of justification, when one's sins are forgiven, then they enter into this process of sanctification. I think of the example of citizenship. So in August 2017, Jinha, Micah, Joshua, and I became Australian citizens. Now, there's a famous man by the name of Cecil John Rhodes, and he once said, to be born British is to win the lottery of life. To be born British is to win the lottery of life. Dwayne is nodding. <laughs> we have someone from the UK here. Now, obviously, we weren't becoming citizens of the, uh, of the United Kingdom, but I felt like my family gained something incredibly valuable and significant that day. Having said that, as the days, the weeks, and the months passed by, I still felt American. Like, I've got this piece of paper that says, you are Australian, but I still felt American. I still have this North American accent, and people still ask me, so where are you from? And I would say, I'm from Coburg. And they would say, yeah, but where are you really from? I'm like, okay, so and I have to go through the whole spiel. What you're looking for is, my parents are from Korea. North or South? Yeah, I'm from North Korea. Actually, Kim Jong-un, he's my uncle. Like, I mean, like, you know, I, don't, I don't know how to answer that. So in some ways, even though I was legally an Australian and I am legally an Australian, there are moments where I don't, I don't quite feel Aussie. So it's been two years now. And in two years, our family now has a footy team. I find myself hoping Daniel Ricciardo will do better in Formula One. When the Boomers played Team USA, I found myself wanting the Boomers to do better. The more time I spend here, I feel myself becoming Aussie, and I feel like the U.S. is becoming more of a foreign country. A few months ago, we went back to the States, and I forgot to drive on the right side of the road. And uh, my wife was like, honey, what are you doing? And I almost killed my whole family. When you first become a believer in Christ, you may not feel like you're a citizen of heaven. But the more time you spend with Christ and with Christians, the more you conform to that legal status. That conforming is sanctification, and that process takes a lifetime. It's not something that happens right away. Right? Like Vegemite, it's an acquired taste, and, and you've got to use it sparingly. You put it on like it's Nutella, it's not, it's not good, right? But you put some avo on there, you get a little bit of, you get a little bit of Vegemite, you put some yeast flakes, it's like, right, it's, it's good. Change takes time, and so it's important to be patient with yourself with the process. Just because you struggle with being a Christian, it doesn't mean you aren't genuine. 
sometimes the citizens of that country will rub you the wrong way. Sometimes the citizens of your country will try and convince you that you don't belong. And sometimes you won't feel like you deserve citizenship. But my point is, you have that legal status. You belong. You belong. So the Bible says that we need to be sanctified. We need to be sanctified. In John chapter 5, or excuse me, John chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So according to Jesus, we must be reborn if we want eternal life. The good news is that that renewal, rebirth, or sanctification is something that is brought about by the Holy Spirit. And so today we're going to be spending a thoughtful moment on that. Um, I apologize in advance. I'm going to Bible text you to death to establish certain points. The next point is going to be one of those things. So I just encourage you, as Dwayne shared, just to read through the text and just kind of ask, how is this meaningful to me? And what I'm going to be focusing on is that the good news is that God is the one who sanctifies. God is the one who sanctifies. I think one challenging aspect of sanctification is many times we think the responsibility is our own. So I've got to be better, right? And we'll talk about that in just a moment. So I'm just going to overemphasize God is the one who sanctifies. So just reading through the texts. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. Notice God is the one who does the sanctifying. It's First Thessalonians 5.23. The next text in John, Jesus is praying here and he says, God, our Father, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. The next text from Philippians, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Now, remember this reference because in a moment I'm going to share the context of this text uh, because uh, Paul does this interesting thing where he says two opposite things and puts them right next to each other. But what I'm emphasizing in verse 13 is that God is the one um, who works in us to do his good pleasure. Acts chapter 16, verse 18. What I want to focus on is this last little bit here so it talks about being free from the power of satan and it says that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me and notice you are not sanctified by what you do you are sanctified by what you believe and for me when i kind of spent a moment just thinking about what does it mean to be sanctified by faith i know what it means to be saved by faith well, what does it mean to be purified by faith? Because I thought purifying is something that I need to do. So then how do you believe the fruition of this promise? We are to trust that God is going to bring about sanctification. Just as we trust that Jesus died for us. We trust that God will purify us. He'll make us new in his time, in his way. Philippians 1.6 and I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. I love how God takes responsibility. He says, it is my responsibility. <clears throat> so, in summary, sanctification 
is not what you do. Sanctification is not your burden. So Second Peter, oh. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, actually, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And for those of you who have the World Changer Bibles, it is page 981. 981. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, page 981. This is what it reads. This is how it reads. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him. The one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. So God takes responsibility, but we have a part to play. We have a part to play. And here's that context to Philippians 2, uh, 13. Here's the verse right before that. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There is this joint effort that we, uh, where we practice goodness and God gives growth. We practice goodness, God gives growth. There are uh, medical professionals out here, and so you know this much better than I, and there are many of you who are fitness buffs, and I'm clearly not a fitness buff, but I'm going to talk about something that is out of my field. So hypertrophy. It's when there's this miracle that happens where you exercise and you put load on your muscles and your muscles begin to break down. And as you rest, your muscles rebuild and grow in size and in strength. And I had a friend who was a physical trainer and he, he talked about uh, hypertrophy, <laughs> hypertrophy as, um, as magic. And he says, the magic happens when you rest. The magic happens when you rest. See, it's possible to overwork your muscles. And some people focus on the work. Uh, they, they focus on the workout and they overdo it. And I'm going to try and pronounce this word. It's rhabdomyolos. I don't know why I even tried. <laughs> there's, a medical, there's a medical term for when you mess up your muscles because you overwork them. So I'm not saying, when, when I use hypertrophy as an example, I'm not saying that the harder you work, the holier you become. What I'm emphasizing in this illustration is that the miracle of growth take, takes place outside of what you do. See, growth is connected to what you do, as in you can't separate muscle growth from st- strength training. Your muscles will not grow if you sit on a couch 24-7, Right? But if you don't put load on your muscles, uh, excuse me, yeah, if you don't put load on your nus- muscles, nothing is going to happen. But notice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 8. 
For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Right? So Paul is saying, God wants you to be sanctified, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lusts like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all uh, such as we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanliness, but to holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. In other words, Paul is saying, God will give you sanctification, but it's connected to this idea of you practicing goodness. You cannot separate sanctification from doing good. And the text is saying, do good. And the rest, then rest in God. See, holiness comes as we learn to rest. I like this process. It, it, it logically sounds a little bit complicating, but I like the way that God designs this because it cures the human heart from pride and it develops humility and genuineness. In other words, I don't do goodness because it makes me holy. I do this because it's good, and then God makes me holy. God gives me growth. God purifies my heart and my intentions. You know, you could be a monk, and you can abstain from every single thing, and, and, and you can just kind of lock yourself in a corner, but it won't necessarily change your heart. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that, where you're just having a bad month. And so the natural tendency, for me at least, is to go into isolation. I'm just going to separate myself from everything, but the challenge is now I'm stuck with myself. And I don't feel myself getting any better, right? And so just the act of not doing doesn't make you good. And that's the point here. The point is God makes us good. So here's a summary. <clears throat> Millard Erickson writes, Justification is an instantaneous occurrence complete in a moment, whereas sanctification is a process requiring an eternal, uh, entire lifetime for completion. One is either justified or not, whereas one is progressively sanctified. Justification is an objective work affecting our standing before God, whereas sanctification is a subjective work affecting our inner person. In other words, Justification does something for us. Sanctification does something in us. Now, I realize I've put my name next to someone who's actually credible, but I didn't know how else to chuck in that summary line. So anyway, it's there. So sanctification is something that's given by God, but cannot be separated from doing good. So the journey of sanctification is not a journey of perfection. We've just talked about the importance of our effort, but I just want to highlight the journey of sanctification is not a journey of perfection. It's natural to be like, I just, I want to be perfect. And I want to share a few Bible verses with you. And the reason why is because perfection through the eyes of imperfect people is inherently incomplete. So in 1 Corinthians, whoop, yeah, there we go. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, Paul writes, Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. 
But then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. See, how can we possibly know what perfection is when we are imperfect? 1 John 1 verse 8. John writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, I remember early on in, uh, well, maybe not even early on in my Christianity, but as I was learning about Jesus, there's kind of like this strive to just be the best that I could be. And there came a point in time where I hit my own expectations and I was like, I have arrived. And then I started dating Jinha, and I was like, okay, I'm not perfect. And then we had children, I was like, I'm definitely not perfect. And so I just, you know, when people ask me, tell me about your conversion story, I just, I don't tell them when I was converted. I just tell them, this is when I met Jesus. <laughs> I'm still being converted um, every, every day, month, year. What I, what I do want to share with you is what perfection looks like from the perspective of Jesus and what perfection looks like from the perspective of Paul. So first looking at Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44, and I've just added these two texts for context. It says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, I remember reading verse 48 for the first time, and I was like, oh, no, (laughs) I'm just never going to make it. But what's important about that line is the context in which that that verse lies. The context of perfection is dealing with imperfect people, right? Love your enemies. Love the people who are imperfect. And then God says, or Jesus says, be perfect. Now, in Luke chapter 6, verses 35 and 36, he says the exact same thing, but the closing line is different. Here's how the text reads. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, sons and daughters of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful just as your father also is merciful. And those two texts can be interchanged. When Jesus says, be perfect, what he's saying is, be merciful. So perfection from the eyes of God isn't so much about us being able to do the right thing. Perfection from the eyes of God is knowing how to respond to people who do the wrong thing. And so as we are able to give mercy and give mercy and give mercy, God says, that's what perfection looks like because it's actually obtainable and when you read through romans 3 23 24 25 i'm not going to go there but basically it just says the righteousness of god is him giving jesus to die for you all right so god is righteous because he gives mercy and that's perfection from the eyes of god so here's perfection from the from the uh perception of paul that's a horrible line. I don't know. I wrote it. I don't know why I wrote it that way. Okay. I just I'm going to look at the bold, but I highly encourage reading through Philippians chapter 3 verses 8 to 16, but starting from the bold. Paul writes, "Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus." Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, 
forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. So perfection from the eyes of Paul, he's just saying, try. It's that direction where you're saying, God, I'm reaching and following you. And Paul says, that's what perfection looks like. It's an attitude. So the Bible does talk about this, this perfection that takes place. And the timing is really important. The timing is really important. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 to 54 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. And then he continues on. And the point is this, it's at the second coming of Christ that we become perfect. That involuntary, sinful nature that we have is then changed. And the reason why this is important is because sometimes as we, the, the more time we spend in church, we just kind of feel like, I should, I should have it by now. I should be a good person by now. I should reflect the character of Christ in, its, in his fullness, and I should be able to share with everyone the love of God. And the whole point, and, and, and sometimes the struggle is, why aren't I there yet? And the point is, we will get there when the world ends. And that's really, really important. Because I think it teaches us, number one, once again, to be patient with ourselves, and then to be patient with those around us. So in the meantime, we suffer and we strive. So why is sanctification important? I'm closing on these points. It shows God's, it shows what God's grace has done, or excuse me, it shows God's grace has done its work in our lives. And just repeating John chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Jesus says, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and of the Spirit. So he's saying the Spirit needs to come into your life and um, reborn you isn't right, but you get what I'm saying. The Spirit needs to come into your life and give you a rebirth experience. Sanctification is also important because it shows that we value God. It shows that we trust God. It shows that we are following God. If you go to Exodus chapter 20 in your Bibles, Exodus is the second book of the Old Testament or the second book of the whole Bible. So Exodus chapter 20 and looking at page 64. Exodus 20, this is page 64. And Exodus 20 is really known for the Ten Commandments. And if you look at verse 3, it starts the Ten Commandments. Uh, you must have no other gods before me. You must not make yourselves uh, an idol of any kind. And and then Moses continues on. And if ever there were a definition of sanctification, of being holy, it would be, man, if I could keep these ten things, I would be holy. But what's often skipped over are the first two verses. If you look at verses one and two, notice how the Ten Commandments begin. It says, Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God 
who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. See, God is communicating, I have freed you from bondage. I have given you a new citizenship. You are no longer Egyptian slaves. You are free Israelites. Now, will you trust me? Will you follow me? Will you practice these life-giving principles? Sanctification shows that we value God, that we're saying, God, you do give me a new citizenship. I do trust you. I do follow you. Thirdly, sanctification shows us that we are in a relationship with Jesus. And this is the last verse for today. John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, obey my commandments. So as we obey God, he purifies us and we are freed from the power of selfishness in our own nature. As you contemplate these things and as you take moments throughout today and even the week and ask that question, God, teach me to trust in you and what in my life do you want me to give to you? May God give you the sense of his presence, the sense of peace, and as you grow in uh, resilience and grit, may you experience that hope that is promised here in Scripture. God bless you. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, we come before you this morning, and uh, you've given us a great and incredible promise that you would purify us, that you would teach us the joy of living free from selfishness, that we would be able to be a community that not only experiences joy, but that can transform the community around us. Father, we live in a world that is in deep need of you. They're in deep need of your goodness, your mercy, your justice. And we just pray that you would do that work in our lives first, and that you would enable us to do to be able to share what that goodness is like to those around us. We pray this in your name. Amen.